0: Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the story of the city from its foundation until the present day as a narrative explanation of what happened as it happened. In the last part, I went over the events from about the 620s to the year 666, when the small but growing market town of Ludenwick, the Saxon version of London that stood where Covent Garden, today sits, came under the influence of King Wolfhira of Mercia. I concluded the last part with me stating my belief that from then onwards for the next 200 years or so, the residents of London saw themselves as Mercian, that Mercia was the nation and polity they identified with and associated with who they were as a community. That's, uh big claim. And as such, I figure I need to add some meat on the bare bones of the argument. As well as that, I feel a need now that the podcast has started to get into its stride to address some deeper issues that are especially prevalent in these early stages of the story. So that's what this chapter intends to do. All right, without further ado then, this is the story of London. Chapter 5. The Mercian Market. According to the song, money, apparently, makes the world go round. Now, while I'm pretty sure that Newtonian physics may have a thing or two to say about that, the truth is, that for as long as there have been humans, there has been a need for wealth. But it isn't always in the form of coins. Take, for example, the residents of Ludenwick, the town that sat on the banks of the River Thames back in the 7th century. They existed in an era where there was no real working currency. Theirs was a world where wealth was measured in food. Each Normal man and woman upon this island was dedicated towards working the land, the nurturing of crops, the raising of livestock. Their lords, men with titles like Ierdoman or Abbot or even King, were entitled to a share of their excess. The kings of Mercia measured their wealth in food. Wulfhere was said to be worth the rents of thousands of households, each just giving up a small measure and meagre contribution. But it all added up. From this excess came the ability to trade. Trade for expensive items or specialist services, like leatherworking or metalworking or so forth. Such skilled services did exist in this darkest of ages, but the sophistication and complexity of the Roman period was long gone. Neighbourhoods of metalsmiths or glassmakers or vendors of fast food, those things were extinct, or if not fully lost, then reduced in number significantly. Said specialists that remained became itinerant, travelling from place to place if they could, but they would gravitate towards places where the trading of things became focused where their services could be in demand for more than a few weeks of the year. Because no matter how bad the situation is during this period, no matter how primitive things were, commerce and trade continued and flourished. Things of value were still haggled over, deals were still made, and markets remained and grew even. That was the foundation of this place, this Ludenwick, the market of the Thames Basin. From the north and south of the river, from a score of hamlets and nearby villages, would come their residents, following well-worn paths over marshy lands, arriving at a market where they could meet their peers from other such small places. And in this place they would find familiar faces, the Archetypal denizens of such marketplaces. The hard-nosed man who would drive a parsimonious bargain. Or the well-liked one who would be slightly more generous. And the river it was built beside meant that from further afield, from places that were not an easy walk, but were an easy sail, came others. Both to those tacking upriver following its current, and from those who drifted downriver, following its tide, Ludenwick provided the same ability to buy and to sell, to trade and to exchange. It would become more popular, with these people alighting here, the market becoming both familiar and mercurial. Wealth generates wealth. Treasure draws more treasure. Trade begets trade. From across the dark waters of the sea beyond the river would be drawn those from the continent. Frisians, whose native lands must have seemed so similar to Ludenwick's, and whose ancestors had been amidst those Jutes and Saxons who had migrated to this island, Frisians would just have to follow the winds from ports like Utrecht and Dumberg and sail beyond the marshlands to find their own way to this port on the Thames. And Franks, the residents of the endlessly dividing kingdoms and sub-kingdoms of the distant Merovingian kings, would also make the journey. This market was a fixed quality, you see. You would know you would find customers here. The journey was worth it. Profit could be made and all groups would know then the cycle of the year. If some Frisian trader wished to purchase fine Saxon leather, he would know to leave in late summer, and, winds being kind, he could make the crossing and arrive in Ludenwig, just as the residents of the surrounding areas would bring their cattle to the market. Here they could be sold, butchered, their meat for one seller, their hides to some tanner. Cured and readied, the tanner could then deal with the foreign trader directly, or more likely given a fee of some kind by some local middleman or some minor potentate, so they could exchange this with our Frisian merchant. After all, those foreigners were the only true source of the greatest treasures. Goods made from precious gold and silver, bullion and gemstone, the highest treasures of all. This, then, is Ludenwick, a place, but also a prize, a destination, but also a goal. This is for me the reason why, as time passes, and the currents of rivalry, of tribalism, of ambition and of religion swirl and flux, and the fortunes of the nations surrounding it rise and fall like the turning of the tide, Ludenwick came under the influence and dominion of one of those many Germanic nations who had settled in the east of this island. Ludenwick came under the dominion of Mercia, or so I insist on saying. But allow me to make some clarifications on these statements. As I said way back in the first chapter, that driven as I am by the need to tell a story, I will sacrifice complexity upon the altar of expediency. As this is a narrative account of the city, I must give way to simplification. That statement about the dominion of Mercia is one such example, but is surrounded by many other simplifications. The idea that the Germanic tribes who came to Britain were separate and totally alien from the Britons, for example, That's a simplification. Germanic tribes had resided on these shores since Roman times, and no one walked about defining themselves by some later invented concept of ethnic purity. The Saxons were as much British as they were German. Englishness, the very concept of it, was a later creation, never once felt or expressed aloud by Anyone at this time in similar vein. The actual mechanisms of control, authority, and dominion were infinitely more complex than how I present them here. People, as we're often reminded, are people. Then, as now, human beings are complicated, nuanced, subtle, and diverse. No nation ever in the history of humanity has ever been simple. No culture has ever been black and white. No politics have ever existed that did not have complexity and depth. So when I state with authority that Ludenwick was under mercy and control, know that I speak as a generalist. I know specific contextual events take place that cast doubt on this. That as the intricate and labyrinthine dynastic politics of the Royal Families of Mercy and other nations played out, the quality of that dominion waxed and waned, like a cycle of the moon. Sometimes it is illuminated, bright and obvious. Oft times it is darkened and obscured. This is the difference, then, between prosody and history, between the account and the story. I say this so those who listen can be both assured that I am not ignorant of the manifold intricacies of this most complex of eras, but in the same vein, I do not feel beholden to lecture the listener with unrelenting details of extended context away from the city I insist on focusing upon. Thus, when I say Ludenwick was under the dominionship of Mercia, I crave the indulgence and forgiveness of those who know the hidden depths of this era, who love to dive into those murky historical waters, but to return to the task before me and the narrative I've decided to tell. For me, proof that the residents of Ludenwick considered themselves part of Mercia was to be found just over a decade after Wulfhere had given the bishopric of the town to an itinerant Frankish monk. It was during the reign of Wulfhere's brother, Æthelred I of Mercia, by all accounts, Æthelred, the much younger son of the virile and expansionist Pender the Strong, was a man given to a deep Christian faith. This man would, in time, resign his throne and grant it to his nephew, the son of Ulfira, before ending his life as an abbot in a monastery found in the distant kingdom of Lindsay, today's Lincolnshire. But while he was the king, Æthelred retained his father and elder brother's more military tendencies. Æthelred restored mercy and fortunes after his brother's death and renewed and maintained his nation's excellent record in fighting and massacring their rivals in Northumbria. And we also know that he was militarily active to the south of Mercia. In 676, Ethelred led a campaign into Kent. Now, contemporary reports say it was, quote, a cruel army, profaning churches and monasteries without fear of God, unquote. Two things jump out to me at this report. The first is that it does strike me as odd that a man known for his pious devotion to the Almighty would profane churches without good reason, which suggests that either he didn't do this and, this was said by critics to slur him, or that the churches and monasteries in question were involved in some decidedly non-religious and political shenanigans. But either way, this also misses the second, most obvious conclusion we can draw from that. Which was? Well, think about the army he launched into Kent. No doubt it was composed of the ferocious warbands of Mercia, whose reputation had been made in the days of Pender the Strong. Their fighting record was known and feared by all. But this force had to gather somewhere, had to be provisioned and supplied by somewhere. And what was the largest Mercian-dominated community to Kent at this time? Ludenwick. It is my belief that the campaign against Kent in 676 of the Common Era by the I of Mercia ...represents the first time we see London getting involved in a fight. Either the residents of Ludenwick helped make up the numbers in that cruel army... ...which is doubtful but not impossible... ...or the town supplied logistical support for the Mercian warriors... ...which is much more likely. This, for me, suggests Mercian control wasn't some abstract thing, it was real and it was political, it was a choice, a choice that came with benefits of course. Any market, any community built upon trade would seek any relationship it has with surrounding powers to be transactional. And here perhaps we see London's most basic transaction played out for the first time time. In the centuries to come we will see time and again London entering into an unspoken accord with whomever ruled over them. Whatever king or queen would walk upon its streets there was always at heart a most base transaction. London would be loyal provided the potentate could provide safety and stability. And here we see the world of the 7th century being one of violence and conflict, strife and death. In the north, for example, we would see endless bloodshed as the kingdom of Northumbria would tear itself apart over the decades to come. And yet here in the region around Ludenwig, we find the stability and security that market towns thrive upon, a peace. A peace in force, perhaps, by the fear of retribution from the largest nation in the region. Hmm? I believe so. I do believe this is why we can consider Ludenwick Mercian. That while Sussex and Essex and Wessex and Kent, the great southern polities, found themselves in conflict and stress, Ludenwick seems to have avoided it all. Even when Mercia was stressed, Ludenwick... ...remained free from fighting. Mercia made Ludenwick special... ...and as such, Ludenwick granted Mercia dominion over them. Indeed, by 680, we know that Æthelred... ...was happily granting land over an Ealing... ...to the Bishop of London... ...without any fanfare or fuss. Now, some could argue that technically Ludenwick was under the control of the Saxon king of Essex, and that mercy control was via proxy alone. But there is a significant difference between direct political proxy and symbolic proxy. Certainly by the 730s, we know mercy and land grants regarding the city no longer have any reference to the rulers of Essex. And for some people, they would see that and insist that mercy and control over the city only began then at the earliest date. But given the utter lack of conflict between Essex and Mercia in the decades leading up to the 730s, this for me suggests that the control of Essex was more tradition than any manifestation of real politique. Simply put, if dominionship of the market wasn't typified by someone placing a flag in the ground and saying, I own this, but rather based on the complicated need for security and stability, for patronage and protection, a relationship that would blow hot and cold as the years went by, but like some long-term marriage would see the partners return to a closeness time and again, then I feel very comfortable describing Ludenwig as becoming from this era onwards one of the principal towns in Mercia, and that it profited from this. This Mercian London was to witness many things during the following years. In 685, we read in the records that there was a blood rain or a bloody rain, and that milk and butter produced that year turned blood red. Red rain falling from the sky? Is this some pure dark-age-style myth and hyperbole? Mm. Probably not. If it happened, then it was most likely caused by a global climactic events, triggered by a volcanic eruption. And the thing is, we know a few years earlier, something had caused a short-term climate shift, which in turn had triggered a massive famine in China and the lands of the Turks in East Asia. And then, a few years later... In Spain, the climate shifted so much that a huge famine hit there also. So, something phantasmagorical was happening to the weather globally, and the blood rain seemed to be part of it. Alas, we know no more, and residents of Ludenwick were perhaps all over it twenty years later, when in 704, Aethelred of Mercia retires to his monastery in Lindsay. It is a measure of just how important Ludenwick was to be to Mercia when you consider that the Mercians kept two royal mints, one in Oxford and the second Ludenwick. The locations made a lot of sense. After all, if the primary source of bullion is what can be brought in from the continent to this impoverished island, then since both Oxford and Ludenwick were located on the Thames, this does suggest... That it was becoming the principal bullion route for Mercia. We know that by the 730s, the small silver sciata, the coin that predated the penny and the first currency this island had seen since the days of Rome, was being minted in London and they were quickly in wide circulation right across Mercia and beyond. By 733, Londoners would have seen an eclipse of the sun. The next year, the moon supposedly turned blood-red, events in the heaven above, which would have distracted them from their more earthly-based concerns, such as ongoing and endless instability and civil strife in all the nations around them. But again, I am left wondering, what was life like for the residents of Ludenwick? If you lived in Ludenwick in the 730s, what kind of society was it? How was mercy and control manifested? Well, I believe we get a brief but tantalising glimpse of what life was like in Ludenwick during this era on a single document from the king of Mercia in the 730s, a man called Æthelbald. I'm going to quote it in full here, but please note, This is, again, a simplification from Old English to the modern vernacular. This is a basic bare-bones translation, and as such does mit out a few flourishes and some details. But anyway, have a listen to this. Quote, I, Æthelbald, king of the Mercians, for the eternal salvation of my soul, and also out of pious love for the saviour of the world, have decided to give a portion of my property to the Almighty Giver of all good things. For that reason, I am giving to Ingwald, Bishop of the City of London, into his own possession eternally, by perpetual right, the toll on one ship, that he might have it without any fear of change, nor, concerning that, that any kings... All my successors or persons of rank of any kind should presume to take possession of anything for themselves against your will. But may it be favourably preserved as a lasting gift for me in blessed repose, <laughs> There is much to unpack here. On the surface, it's just the King of Mercia giving the Bishop of London the right to toll the ship, a.k.a. possession of the ship itself. And we have to say, the chances are King Ethelbald was illiterate, so he didn't write it, but some cleric in his service did. And perhaps this is why the document makes such a big thing, not just about the gift, but goes on and on about how no one could ever take it from the bishop with a single-minded determination that could suggest the later artistic flourishes by said unknown scribe. But look deeper and see what we can glimpse about the London he talks about. It is a place with a rather sophisticated system of tolls and taxations, especially given the supposedly primitive nature of society back then. We know the document goes on about the provision of rebuilding the ship in question If it gets damaged, so here is a grant suggesting a regulated and profitable trade network. It suggests a system of levies, the taxations of goods coming in and out, which suggests someone is overseeing this. People appointed to this overseeing role, probably locals, chosen because they were familiar with the comings and goings, who would be best to regulate and enforce such things. This is a town which built its own trade boats, or paid others to build said boats, suggesting such regulation had an infrastructural network around it that was, for the 8th century, apparently quite sophisticated. The document also makes big about preventing others from taking this from the bishop, which suggests this kind of thing, rich people going after the possessions of other rich folks, was commonplace, a somewhat litigious society perhaps. Which is why King Ethelbald supposedly makes such a big thing to cover all possible contingencies. Notice who he names as the people who are forbidden from taking the ship of the Bishop of London. He says any kings, which clearly refers to sub-kings and local rulers so for example the rulers of Essex. He refers to my successors which probably refers to his extended mercying cousins and in-laws without even mentioning the veritable legion of children he was spawning due to his habit of turning up at convents to persuade nuns from noble families to lift their skirts for him. And it also mentions and bans persons of rank of any kind which refers to, well, everyone really, but including other clergy. This suggests to me a society that rank gave power, but there was endless competition, especially for something as lucrative as the ability to tax the trade coming into Ludenwick. Indeed, so generous a gift is it, that the king thinks it will be marked as a deed good enough To secure a favourable view of the almighty himself This suggests Ludenwick in the 730s Would be recognisable to us in one respect It is a bustling city of trade, commerce, of regulations And of people looking to push back against the rules To make a little bit of profit A place of faith, yes. But faith coupled with the simple desire to trade and to trade hard. By the 730s then, we have a Ludenwick where boats are bringing goods in on a regular basis and shipping goods out and the taxation on these goods is seen as profitable enough to be accorded a kingly gift. This London was a centre of international trade, and this would be proven in the reign of the king who followed the long-ruled and rather verbose Ethelbald, the most successful of all the kings of Mercia, Offer the Great. But that part of the story deserves its own chapter, so we will end this part here. Thank you for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. I would like to thank all those lovely people who have sent kind words of support over the last week or so. I'm going to try to regularly update this podcast every Tuesday or so, but if I get especially productive, I may do two episodes a week, with a secondary one on a Friday. Not every week, but if I can. Please leave a like or an upvote if you enjoyed it, as it really does impress the algorithms that run our world. The next episode will cover one of the greatest kings of the 8th century, and arguably the most important ruler of London until Alfred the Great. Coming up in the next part, Offers London.